We're not to come to terms with sin. We are not to rationalize about sin. We are not to make peace about sin. We are not to linger in Sodom like Lot did. We are to have a holy hatred for sin. We are to make our presence scarce. We are to flee it like Joseph fled Potiphar's wife. Flee youthful loss. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're learning about how to be useful in the body of Christ, part of our study in the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 2. Yesterday, we discussed some of the dangers of false teaching. As Pastor Carl picks up today, he looks at how to discern whether a teacher of God's Word is solid in his theology or whether he is a false teacher. It's been said that a tree is known by its fruit, and so it is with false teachers. So let's see what fruit of false teachers is as we rejoin Pastor Brogy. What are some of the fruits of a false teacher that we ought to look for and examine? Well, fast forward a few chapters, if you would, to Matthew chapter 12, Matthew 12. The primary fruit is really twofold. One is doctrine. The second is influence. The primary evidence of whether or not a man would be considered displaying good or healthy doctrine versus bad is, first of all, his doctrine. Now, remember, Paul is speaking in our text this morning of two men, Hymenaeus and Philetus, whose doctrine, he says, is empty, ungodly, and infectious, gangrious, all right? Here in Matthew 12, Christ is speaking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, Look at verse 33. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good and the evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. Now, the next two verses we quote all the time, and very often we apply them in a sense to all Christians, but, and that's a legitimate application, but understand them in their original context. He's speaking of teachers who give evidence of whether or not they are a good teacher or a bad teacher by the kind of teaching that they portray. Verse 36, I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. The Pharisees were the teachers of the day. Their mouth was filled with false teaching, and so they condemned themselves. Christ's point is that a man's heart is revealed in his words, that you will know a teacher by his teaching. Now, the teaching of a false prophet very often will have some common traits. And one of the common traits of a false teacher is they have an amoral optimism. They tend to make man a little bit better than he really is and God a little bit less just than he really is. They tend to bring God up, I mean bring man up and to bring God down. And typically they speak of God as a God of love and kindness and grace and he is all those things. But you never hear of them speak of God as a God of justice and wrath. 
Oh, you know, this concept of a liquid lake of fire that men will spend an eternity in agony with no escape. Oh, that's just old-fashioned, and so you won't hear that. One dear lady visited our church, and I witnessed to her, and she didn't receive Christ initially. And she went back to the church she came from here in this town. And that pastor said, well, listen, you know, Brogy, we know better. All of us are going to heaven. All people are going to heaven. We may not be the same, have the same status in heaven, but we're all going there. I want to tell you, he's a false teacher. And that's typically what false teachers do. They create an image of God that is out of balance. Listen to what Jeremiah the prophet said. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord has said, you will have peace. And as for everyone who walks in the stubbornness of his own heart, they say, calamity will not come upon you. And of course, what they did was a tremendous disservice to the people of God. They lulled the Jews of Jeremiah's day into a false sense of security. They lulled them to sleep in their sin. They failed to warn the people of impending judgment. They came just like God said it would come through Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Now, I don't want you to think that the teaching of Christ here in Matthew 7 is accidental because it's not. He speaks of two gates, of two ways, of two crowds, and of two eternal destinies. And false prophets are quite skilled at blurring the narrow way of the path that leads to salvation. You know, some people will come here from another church, and we're so glad every week God brings new people. And sometimes they will visit from other churches in our town. And sometimes I will read a visitor's card, and when I see the church that is written on there, I can almost guess whether the person knows Christ or doesn't. Because when week after week, month after month, year after year, you meet people who come from a particular church or churches, and they've been there sometimes in leadership positions, Sunday school teachers, deacons, elders, and they don't know the plan of salvation, I want to tell you they're sitting under a false prophet. They are sitting under someone who has lost the gospel, who has blurred the way of salvation, which is so often what people do. Now, Paul made it very clear, as did the Lord Jesus, that a bad teacher is seen in his teaching. But secondly, both Jesus, Moses, and Paul taught that a bad teacher is also seen in his influence. Listen to these words from the book of Deuteronomy. Moses instructed his people, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you, and gives you a sign or wonder. You know, the devil can do miracles. I hope you know that. And the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear Him. You shall keep His commandments, listen to His voice, serve Him and cling to Him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. You shall purge the evil from among you. 
The way they dealt with it in the theocracy called Israel is when a false teacher came in, they were snuffed out. Now, the church is no longer living under a living theocracy. That will happen again when Christ will rule upon the earth. And so God's instruction to Timothy, avoid them. Avoid such men as these. But here's the point I want you to see, is that a man's teaching and a man's influence will help you to know whether or not they are a true teacher or a false teacher. If you sit under a pastor who says, well, as long as you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it doesn't matter how you live. You're living under a false prophet. That's antinomianism, a common error that has crept time and time up again in the church, which the Bible repeatedly addresses. Teaching, if it is cut straight, will make a difference. Now, it does not mean that there'll be no sin in the ranks. Jesus made it very clear that the wheat and the weeds would be put together until the time of the harvest. The Lord speaks of even wayward Christians who need the discipline of a local church. But you need to look at the tenor of any local fellowship that you join, and you need to ask yourself a question. Do those people as a whole have a heart and a on a proclivity for the things of God for a holy living or not. That is a mark. Now go back to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Here you have these people who were bad teachers. They had swerved from the truth. And Paul is giving a warning. He told them, he told Timothy, be careful because their teaching will spread like gangrene. And in the process, their teaching had upset the faith of some of God's people. Look at verse 17. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and thus they upset the faith of some. Now, the metaphor that he uses here of a bad workman is a little bit different. He doesn't bar it from civil engineering of a man who cuts a straight road or from the realm of agriculture of a man who plows a straight furrow. He draws the illustration from the realm of archery of a man who shot at a target, but he's missed the bullseye. He has swerved. Literally, that's what the word means. Listen to the English Standard Version, a new literal translation that's come out in the last three years that is excellent. Having swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. The New English Bible renders it, they have shot wide of the truth. Hymenaeus and Philetus were two false teachers who had misled the people of God, and in their teaching, they had swerved from the truth. Men, he says, verse 18, who have gone astray from the truth, saying the resurrection has already taken place. Now think about that for a second. They'd come into the church... And some of God's people listened to them, and they got kind of ruffled and upset. Imagine they're saying the resurrection already took place, and, and some of their loved ones whom they had hoped to see, they were basically told by the way they taught the doctrine of the resurrection that it had, they would never see them. And so it was very upsetting. I mean, all you had to do was walk into any local graveyard, and you would know in some sense the resurrection had not yet taken place. So what were these people doing? It's an error that has reduplicated itself in the history of the church. In fact, it's an error that Paul addresses to the Corinthians where the resurrection was spiritualized. 
when Paul dealt with the Corinthians and the false teachers who had come in there, he said in 1 Corinthians 15, 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? And so his whole argument in that passage is if Christ rose, literally, actually, physically, you too will literally, actually, physically rise again. And there have been denominations in Paul's day and in our day that have swerved from the truth, that demythologize the resurrection and basically say, yes, the resurrection has already taken place and that Christ has already risen up in our hearts. Hey, listen, some of your children are going to leave your home someday and you need to make sure they've got a handle on some basic truth because there are so many in our day as the Bible preaches and teaches that as we move to the last of the last days, there will not be a decrease, but an increase of apostasy, people who depart from the faith. And a man who looks like a Christian, smells like a Christian, walks like a Christian, who's not a Christian because he's a wolf, will use the same terms and mean entirely different things. And so a pastor may tell you, being dishonest, not wanting to lose his job or his salary, I believe in the resurrection of Christ, but not in a literal, actual sense. They say he spiritually rose from the dead. And that was the problem that Paul was facing. And in the course of time, it had upset some. And Paul says, this is like infection. It's like gangrene. And so the truth is likened to a target that you will either hit or you will miss. The word of truth is likened to a road cut through the woods or like a, a furrow that is plowed. It will either be straight or crooked. And if a pastor and if you are diligent to study the word of God, you will be able to hit the target. Now notice what he says in verse 19, how they upset the faith of some and what that what implications that has. Verse 19, but God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And secondly, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, God knows those who are a part of the true church. And those who are a part of the true church have his seal. One translation says his inscription. The day God saved you, he gave you the spirit of God. And he is God's seal, God's mark until the day of redemption. So that what God began, he promises to complete. And so God knows even these who are upset, even these who are knocked off kilter, the Lord knows those who are his and those who are his are certainly kept forever. But I want you to see that this seal that God speaks of is not only secret and invisible, but it is also public and visible. There's a secret side to it. The Lord knows those who are his. There are some people I wonder about, but God knows. I can't read the heart. God can. God knows those who are His. That's the invisible side of the seal. But He gives a second part is He uses this little small conjunction and. It's visible in public. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. While God alone can see the heart, we can see the life. And the life, Paul argues, as Christ did, is reliable evidence of the heart condition. And both seals are essential. One is human, the other is divine. And together they bear the firm foundation, what we call the church. Now that's his first illustration. 
of the unashamed workman. And that first illustration leads directly into the second, like night follows day. You can see the logic of thought. He moves into the second illustration of the clean vessel. Notice, if you will, verse 20. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, some to honor, some to dishonor. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now, Paul paints a very clear picture, and let's think our way through it. Again, in verse 20, in a large house, there's different kinds of vessels, gold and silver, some of wood and earthenware, some that you use for honorable purposes, some for ignoble, menial, dishonorable purposes. If I go to your home, you've got some vessels that are set apart. If you come to my house, I've got some like that. I have a variety of pots and pans and dishes, some old pots that... I have set apart my wife for Jameson, so when he has a campfire, it's used for that purpose and that purpose only. And then there's some other pots that are used exclusively in our kitchen. We've got some wedding dishes that we use on special occasions. And then we have some very common, everyday plasticware and other things that are used, you know, for an outside barbecue and different things like that. Now, if that's true in my home, it's certainly true in what Paul deems here a large home, a stately mansion where you up the quality a little bit. There are gold and silver vessels, which are for honor, for special occasion, birthdays, anniversaries, a guest, and certainly for the master's own personal use. And then there are vessels of wood and earthenware, everyday dishes that are cheaper and just for common use. So we need to ask a question. Precisely, what is the apostle alluding to in this metaphor? Well, certainly the great house is God's house. That is the visible, professing church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what are these vessels? That's the hard one. Well, it's interesting because if you look carefully in the context and in other places in the New Testament, you discover that God uses this term vessel not so much to draw a distinction between true and false Christians, but to draw a distinction between true and false leaders and teachers in the church. For instance, when Jesus appeared to Ananias about the newly converted Saul of Tarsus, he said to Ananias, For he, Saul, is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. It's the same Greek word for vessel that Paul was used by Christ to, used by Christ to describe as his instrument. It is a term that God uses for leadership in the church. Now, follow it along in the context because he's just gone from contrasting a good workman with a bad workman, and now he's going to take it another level with a good vessel versus a bad vessel. And in both cases, even in the third metaphor, the difference between a good teacher and a bad teacher. Notice verse 21. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things... He will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now, it is true that he's speaking primarily in relationship to pastors and teachers in the church. That's not to say that there's not a general application for all believers. But don't miss the point that he wants to make. If a man cleanses himself from these, now notice the word things. It is italicized here. 
in the English text which tells you that it's not a part of the original. It's not in the Greek New Testament, but it's added by the translators to smooth the reading or sometimes to bring about a clear implication. What are the things or these the vessels, the people that he's just described in the prior verse. And he gives a promise here. He further elaborates. He said, a man who will separate himself from these, these kind of dishonorable vessels that he's just spoken of, will number one, be sanctified, set apart. Number two, they will be useful. That is serviceable to the master. Number three, they'll be prepared or ready for every good work. Do you want God to use you? I mean, I can't think of a higher honor than for God to reach down in this congregation to take some man, some woman, some boy, even some girl, and say, you know, at this moment, on this day, in this hour, you are my chosen instrument, and I want to use you. That's what God wants to do. But understand that God does not just use anyone. Some of us will stand in heaven because we've been saved by grace. And the Lord Jesus Christ will evaluate our lives. He'll look at all that we've done. And when he looks at our service, for some of us, Paul says it will be wood, hay, and stubble and consumed with fire. Because while we may have been active, we were not useful. I don't know about you, but I want to be useful. So what makes us usable before the Lord is it's unfolded in this metaphor. Well, God uses a clean vessel. And he expounds on that cleanliness in two realms, first in doctrine and then in terms of duty. Notice first, purity of doctrine is essential to being usable for Christ. If God is going to use you, you must be clean or pure in your doctrine. If a man cleanses himself from these things, if we are to be useful to Jesus Christ, there is some sense in which God has called his leadership, his people, to separate himself from dirty vessels who are not faithful to the word of God, who are dishonorable vessels, who swear from the truth, who are bad workmen. Now, again, I don't think he is calling us to cut ourselves off from nominal Christians. And next time, when we come to chapter 3, Paul will go in-depth on the doctrine of separation. So I want you to wait for that. Certainly, our Lord was a friend of sinners, and he hung with sinners. But there is a sense in which a leader, especially a pastor in the church, is called to separate himself from these, that is, these dishonorable vessels, these false teachers, if you're going to be usable for God. And there are several reasons for that. Now, I've done this in the course of my ministry. I remember when I first came to Beaufort, for the first three or four months, I attended a ministerial meeting of sorts with pastors from numerous churches in this town. And after about three or four months, I decided I'm not going anymore. And I felt like it was a waste of time and for me, a poor witness. Number one, as I sat in that meeting, I discovered that there were some pastors who believed that we ought to have a woman's right to be able to kill little babies. Now, I happen to believe that from the moment of conception, it is life in the womb, and that if you take that life, you've committed murder. Now, it's not an unforgivable sin, 
And I know we have scores of people who've been saved out of a background where they lived immorally, where they used abortion as a form of birth control. And what Jesus has called clean, let no man call unclean. God can clean and wash away every blot, stain, and vestige of sin if you've been guilty of that and give you a clear conscience and praise God someday you'll meet that baby in heaven. But when I understood there were some people who had a low view of life and most of those pastors who had a low view of Scripture, I said, that's it. I am not coming back. And I took criticism. I was told that I was disunifying, that I was, uh, you know, not a unifier of Christians in the body of Christ. I want to tell you something, brother. God does not call you to link arms with everyone. Now, I believe in unity. I believe in the high priestly prayer where our Lord said, Oh, Lord, that they may be one, even as we are one, that the world may know that thou didst send me. But God's unity amongst his men and his churches are amongst those who are true Bible-believing Christians. So fundamentally, there must be a separation from those who preach false doctrine. Because when you join arms... To those who teach false doctrine, in essence, you give endorsement. Had I stayed in that month after month, year after year, I basically would have said their ministry is just as significant as what I believe, though we believe quite differently. And I would have sent a message of error and I would have given an account to God for it. Now, secondly, not only is there to be purity of doctrine, there is to be purity of life. Purity of life, point B there, is essential to being usable for Christ. Look at verse 22. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. A useful human vessel must be holy. And when describing the good versus the bad workman, the true teacher versus the false, he has already said, let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. And now again, he exhorts leadership in the church, flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness. The overall arching teaching of scripture is that God uses clean people, that God uses what Paul calls in Romans 6, vessels or instruments of righteousness. If you want to have a life in ministry with God's blessing and God's power upon it, you have to make some decisions as to whether or not you're going to live holy. Now, negatively, he says, flee youthful lusts. The Greek word is fuge, and it means to escape or to seek safety from impending danger. It was used of Stephen when he describes Moses in Acts 7 of, of Moses who fled the wrath of Pharaoh. In addition, it's used of Joseph and Mary who fled Herod who wanted to kill the baby Jesus. In the same way, this verb is used spiritually of fleeing youthful lust because of the awful danger that it brings on the life. We're not to come to terms with sin. We are not to rationalize about sin. We are not to make peace about sin. We are not to linger in Sodom like Lot did. We are to have a holy hatred for sin. We are to make our presence scarce. We are to flee it like Joseph fled Potiphar's wife. Flee youthful lust. That is what the Apostle Paul tells us to avoid, what to run away from when it comes to sin. When we continue our study in 2 Timothy tomorrow, we'll look at the corollary of fleeing, and that is what we should pursue. To listen again to today's message entitled, Useful to the Master, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, 
or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling us at 877-787-7478 and requesting program 2TM5. If this teaching has proved beneficial to you, would you consider helping out with a one-time gift or perhaps by becoming a foundation partner? If so, just call us at 877-787-7478 and ask how you can help. Join us again tomorrow when Pastor Berge concludes his message entitled, Useful to the Master, as we search the Scriptures.